You're listening to the Good Fight Podcast, where campus meets Christ. Welcome back to the Good Fight Podcast. In this episode, we'll be concluding our discussion of the Christological material of the Nicene Creed. And I'm joined again by Joel today. Joel, say hi. <laughs> hey guys, what's going on? Let me reread the Christological, the whole Christological passage from the Creed, just mm-hmm. so we know what we're looking at, what we've covered so far, and what we're going to conclude by looking at today. So this passage goes, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. So those are big words there. Uh, Joel was just telling me some funny stories about his uh, time at a monastery school <laughs> and things like that. And now we're jumping into a, hopefully some of those will come up, but now we're jumping into a uh, pretty weighty discussion of theological matters that might seem very abstract, that might seem very abstruse. Why does it matter that he's God from God? Why is that repeated? True God from true God? Why is there so much emphasis on this? And why does it matter? And so maybe a little bit of the history of this section of the creed could help us understand that. Joel, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think, especially in this section, just a rough sketch of the historical outlook at the time is extremely important in understanding why we stress this section so much in the Nicene Creed. Um, and so for brief, brief historical context, um, there was essentially this rogue preacher named Arius. Um, and he was, uh, at the time, very influenced by a lot of uh, Greek mythology and a lot of Neoplatonic thought um, and began to twist our understanding of Christ and his relationship with God. So he believed that the relationship was a little bit more similar to white, you know, the Greek myths of uh, Achilles or or Hercules, you know, being sons of God, but not, you know, one with God, right? Um, And so he began to twist this a little bit more and say, you know, Christ was sort of possessed by the Logos and, or possessed by God, sorry, by his uh, spiritual nature and his uh, physical nature was not united, but more controlled. Um, And we can see how that distortion would uh, twist our viewing of Christ. And so the very popular phrase that Arius would promulgate and and his followers was there was a time when he was not right and he would point to certain passages and scriptures and and twist our interpretations right things like um you know the father is greater than i am no one but the father is good right um uh things like that um you know to 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 say that oh this is you know what christ meant this is what he meant that he was lesser than god he was not of the same substance um and uh, yeah, it, it, this, these theories started to catch fire and spread very, very quickly throughout the uh, early church. Um, as uh, as St. Jerome would say, um, you know, there was a time when the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian, right? It was like over 70% of the church basically subscribed to this Arian heresy, this idea that uh, Christ was, was not eternal, that he was not one with God, but, but rather lesser or, or, or something like that. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. So this idea that Christ was essentially, if I followed a human being first and foremost created as a human being who 
like the rest of us, at some point did not exist and was brought into existence. And then at some point later on, he was possessed by God, became God, essentially. I think we touched on a few passages, say, in Hebrews last time about him being perfected that might have been taken that way. What do you think was so popular about Arianism? What do you think was so appealing about it? If really 70% of the early church at some point held to this, what do you think was the draw there? Yeah, um, I think one of the real attractions to Arianism is his own, like, our own natural temptation to, uh, to stress the supremacy of God, right? It's, ta- it's hard to wrestle with the idea of a trinity, right? It's a very complicated idea. Um, that there's three, yet one, yet they're all the same, but also different. It, it, it can be hard to fully encapsulate that idea, right? It's sort of a mystery for a reason beyond our own conception, um, beyond our own ability to even, uh, to even comprehend. Um, and so it's sort of this you know, natural human tendency that we see throughout history with all sorts of things, um, kind of stemming from you know, sort of pride, a sort of arrogance that is like, oh, you know, if we can't comprehend God, then maybe we're just misunderstanding what he's revealed to us. And actually, we can probably, we want to comprehend God, right? In our own desire to know and love him, we want to remove some of the mystery, you know, so that we can better know him. But actually, that that ends us uh, leading into grave error and misunderstanding him. So, you know, it can be very natural to, like, want to simplify the Trinity, but the complexity of it, you know, should never be uh, never be diminished, really. Okay, I see. So there's this oversimplification aspect. There's this perhaps on some level praiseworthy desire even to keep God Mm -hmm. kind of distinct from us. Mm -hmm. Sort of this idea that St. Paul sometimes talks about of Christ being like a stumbling block. He's hard to understand in the Greco-Roman world. Why would God, being who he is, kind of become a human being? And so, okay, that, that kind of makes sense there. And so the creed you're saying was formulated specifically in response to to Arianism? Yeah. Um, well, the Nicene Creed, especially. So, you know, this Arian heresy was spreading like wildfire throughout the early church and causing all sorts of chaos, right? Uh, one can imagine, you know, the sort of rogue ideas and, and the sort of conflict that can breed between people and dissensions. And, you know, you don't have to look very far into history to see that religious conflicts can often turn quite uh, quite chaotic or violent very quickly. Um, and so there was all this dissension, you know, bishops writing against bishops, priests writing against priests, you know, people all over decrying, um, you know, whatever was preached, um, sometimes leaving the church, uh, even, you know, uh, leaving one church, going to another. So it wasn't really a good time. Um, and so the whole um, solution was Constantine, right, emperor at the time, saw that this sort of dissension and conflict and uh, disunity wouldn't be good for the empire writ large. Um, hopefully on some level, he also didn't want disunity in the church, but his motivations are probably primarily uh, political. He was actually Arian himself or had Arian tendencies. Um, so he wasn't super pleased with the outcome of the, the council, but we'll get to that later. Um, but yeah, so he convened the, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325 to address the controversy. Um, and after a lot, a lot of debate, you know, Arius himself was present at the council, as well as many of his uh, followers um, and bishops. And it was it was a very intense debate, you know, um, just on a, a brief tangent. Right. So St. Nicholas, right. Jolly Nick, one of our favorite um, Christmas bountiful uh, 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 saints um, was present at this council. And when upon hearing the heresy that uh, 
that Arius proclaimed, after a while, St. Nicholas got so frustrated that he went up and punched Arius and just socked him right in the jaw. He's a notorious brawler. Um, and of course, you know, that wasn't why he became a saint. Um, he's one of many facts. No, no, no. Um, I don't want to condone violence. Um, but uh, so he was, after that, you know, he was uh, arrested and uh, dis- disrobed of his uh, bishop, bishop's mitre and, and et cetera until he... Was he exiled to the North Pole after that? Or what? <laughs> yeah, and he, he, you know, all the other bishops and priests who socked Arius's followers went up with him and were the elves. No, is no. no. <laughs> I, that, would, that would be quite the mythology, but uh, no, no. His penance was to give gifts, you know. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah, he uh, he was in jail for a while, and then, um, yeah, and then he was eventually freed after it was miraculously, he was miraculously found in his jail cell, uncuffed and restored with his bishop's robes. And uh, so they thought, well, something's going on with this guy, and maybe he has a point. Um, so, yeah, there was a, all sorts of debates, all sorts of arguments, sometimes physical even. Um, but eventually the council was able to decide, right, to create this creed. This um, this creed was written um, at the end of the council, convened, and was, was then promulgated uh, as the template, as a good guideline for understanding the faith and making sure one didn't fall into heresy. Um, and so, you know, throughout the rest of this podcast, the rest of this episode, we'll be, you know, referencing the Council of Nicaea and looking at some of the arguments and reasons that they gave for why, you know, this wasn't the case. Okay. Lots of interesting things there. I did not know that about St. Nicholas. <laughs> so, you know, this is Christmas related too. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but don't suck your relatives. Though. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, <laughs> good guideline. I think, oh. I guess my question here, uh, one question that came to mind is, well, in the modern world, uh, more secular world, we look at the conflict that has sometimes historically arisen from mm-hmm. religion and we're like, mm-hmm. Well, okay, then the solution is to, you know, not treat religion as that important or, you know, let people believe what they want. We're very suspicious of attempts to define orthodoxy, essentially, which seems to me what this creed is doing. And at the time, it was kind of linked even to a state effort Mm. to say this is the right belief and this will ensure unity both of the church and of the empire. Mm -hmm. So how do we respond to that or how do we deal with that? The fact that to modern secular eyes, this looks like just an attempt to establish an orthodoxy kind of control belief. What, mm-hmm. What's the what's the thinking there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so we can be very hesitant um, from our age, right? You know, we want to promote all this uh, free speech, free you know whatever you can believe, whatever you want. Yeah, it can be very obvious or very weird from modern eyes to to see this. Um, you know, bishops talking each other over you know what might seem to be minor squabbles in abstract concepts that we can, you know, never really understand. Um, but I, I think that's like the wrong way to look at it, to say that these people are trying to control and dogmatize uh, certain things in a negative light. Um, essentially, what we can think of it is, is there is a lot of disunity and, and fight before the, uh, the Council of Nicaea, right? Christians weren't sure what to think, right? They weren't sure how to treat each other. They weren't sure what, what the bishop was saying, whether it was true. There's a lot of confusion and chaos, right? And so, you know, the solution wasn't to go to these Christians and say, oh, just uh, don't care about this. Don't take it so importantly, right? No one who was a Christian at that time, or even a Christian today, should uh, be uh, 
would be convinced by uh, don't don't take it so importantly, right? If this is truly what we believe to be the be all end all, right? The most important thing, uh, most important knowledge, right? Um, so it's more like you know when we have some sort of confusion, right? We want to take um, the best, smartest, most learned people in that field and sort of convene them, and and they should discuss and try and figure out what is actually true, right? And why it's true, so that there won't be as much confusion or violence. Um, among each other, and we can spread uh, a fa familial love, familial um, unity around each other. Um, and these these learned men were just as much human as the rest of us. So sometimes they uh, they were subject to the same uh, uh, mistakes that we made, mm -hmm. um, but even they became saints. You know, um, so um, yeah. So we we want to eliminate confusion, right? You know, it would be wrong to say like, oh, there's this confusion about the ideas and we don't know which one's the right idea. So we'll just leave it. We'll just let it go. It doesn't matter. Right. Because it, it does matter. Right. The way we understand Christ, the way we come to know him um, is super important for how we can incorporate him into our lives and how we can, you know, imitate him in, in all that we do. Um, and while it can seem like archaic and abstract, it's actually really important when we understand, right. Some of the things that, this heresy would imply about Christ that don't seem to be true. And if we truly took them seriously, the negative impact it would have on our spiritual life and our relationship with Christ, which should be, you know, paramount. I see. Okay. That makes sense. At least on the level of the church, I can see why a council would be valuable. Now, I personally have uh, thoughts as well about, uh, would have concerns about sort of the linkage with state power that was mm -hmm. going on at the time, yeah. but I think that's more of a topic for another episode, but that's uh, a long conversation. But I, th I do think your answer to that question helped answer another question I was going to ask, which is something that has sometimes troubled me as a classics major, where <laughs> you think, okay, these things that happened like in the Roman Empire mm -hmm. so long ago, why do they matter right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these yeah. texts I'm translating, haven't they been translated before? Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the relevance for today and... If I took your answer correctly, it seems to be that if we're dealing with timeless or perennially relevant truths, mm -hmm. then those will be relevant at any point, essentially, mm -hmm. both for the ancient Romans and or both for the those in the Roman Empire, sorry, and for us today. Okay, so I think that's a good entry point into the content of the creed itself. And let me phrase it this way to go right off of that question. So if the Aryan conflict was somewhat dealt with at the time by this creed, why do we keep reciting this creed, right? Is Arianism still around? What are the mistakes that Arianism tends to? And what, in contrast to that, does this creed emphasize? Yeah. Um, so while the Council of Nicaea, right, you know, officially declared things that weren't... Um, and declared that Arianism was a heresy and, and, and put all these things in, in, in place. Arianism didn't disappear overnight. Um, it took a long time, right? Slow processes. One of the important practices was repeating the creed, you know, uh, regularly to sort of slowly get this out of people's minds. But even then, even today, while the official term Arianism isn't like super well used or there's not like some denomination called Arianism or Arianists, um, we can all have that tendency in our own lives and our own understandings to become a little Arianist, right? To to diminish the importance of Christ, to try and rationalize him as as just one of us and, you know, not more uh, 
not more, not something more, perhaps. Um, so while like we might not call ourselves Arianists or you know officially capital A title ourselves that word that way, um, with our own understandings of Christ and with modern society's understandings of Christ, we can tend towards diminishing his divinity and um, and that can be really really uh, it can have a lot of bad consequences on the way we view Christ on our spiritual health and relationship with him right the most important thing about Christology right or the study of Christ and, and his persons is the role that it plays in the life of each of us right in the life of the believer you know recognizing who Jesus is what he is and why he did those things are essential to knowing him and loving him you know, better, right? If we truly love someone, we would try to to understand more about them as much as we possibly could, right? Without, uh, you know, completely trying to rationalize them. Um, and just to touch on some of the, the co- bad consequences we can have, right? So I think the most um, damning consequence of a true subscriber to Arianism is that they would reject, they would have to reject the idea that Christ is our savior, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't say that Christ saved us because only God can save us, right? And, and since Christ is lesser than God and not one with God, he can't um, he can't save us. He can merely serve as a conduit, right? Which isn't quite how we would disguise how we would describe our relationship with Christ, right? You know, mm-hmm. diminishing him, not calling him our savior, and then not. And then the question is, why do we even want a personal relationship with Christ if he's just, you know? Uh, a, a demigod like Achilles or Hercules, right? How could we say that he was perfect? You know, we start to ask all these questions. Um, he probably sinned. It's probably just not in the scriptures, right? Or maybe he had an evil, uh, you know, maybe he told a white lie to his mom or something like that. And we start diminishing these things. And then we sort of fail to recognize the more important mysteries, right? The Trinity is so important to understanding how we conceptualize God as, you know, Christians fundamentally say God is love, right? Not that God... Um, is loving, but that God somehow is love itself, right? And we can't understand that if we don't have a tripersonal God. But that, you know, that's maybe a little too <laughs> abstract. You're saying love between is between persons, right? And so that's why we say God is love. That's why the Trinity is important to understand. That yes, doctrine. yeah, okay. yeah. That's a better way of putting it. Um, yes. So, yeah, it, it starts diminishing a lot of things. You know, the cross. Why is the crucifixion so important? If if Jesus isn't God, you know, he can't uh, save us all, right, or forgive all of our sins, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, right. we want to be careful to dismiss this as sort of just a small disagreement that doesn't have any practical ramifications. I see. There's a lot of interesting things going on here because what you're saying is that this sort of thinking about Christ might start with a desire to preserve God's grandeur, but it ends up by diminishing <laughs> yeah. it because we don't see the grandeur of God's plan and salvation, mm. uh, his victory, his triumph over death, his, his sort of initiative in uh, saving people who couldn't save themselves. And I think that's, that's very interesting because there's like this reversal of we tried to keep his grandeur in some sense and end up diminishing it, whereas the whole story of the incarnation, as we'll get to, is of him accepting his glory being diminished of him humbling himself and in the end being even more glorified. So mm-hmm. I think there's some really beautiful dynamics going on there. Um, okay. So God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. We talked a little bit about that last mm-hmm. time, begotten, not made consubstantial with the father, 
consubstantial, a uh, big word there. I can talk <laughs> a bit about the Latin, but what's going on with consubstantial? Uh, yeah, so yeah. consubstantial is sort of like the, uh, um, the, the climax, I would say, of this phrase, right? Consubstantial. What does it mean? What's, what's important? Um, it's probably the most famous slash controversial word in the creed, um, especially post-Nicaea. Um, so the term derives from the Latin, uh, so in, or sorry, in the, the Greek, sorry, don't, uh, don't get too mad at me, Tim. Um, so homo, right, same, and usia, substance, right. right? Homo usia of same substance, right? Um, and coined by, uh, you know, an, an advisor to Emperor Constantine, who is at the, the council, right? Um, but essentially, the, mo- the, and the important thing about it is uh, that, that Christ is of same substance with God, right? Of homo usia mm. with God. He is eternal, right? With, you know, if he's of the same substance, he is eternal, always, you know, with God, always, um, you know, one with God, right? There, there can't be a time when he was not, right? Just as we would say God is eternal and there wasn't a time when he wasn't. Uh, the same must be said for Christ, right? Um, and so the, 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 the idea that it's of same substance is, is crucial to understanding how these things work, right? Uh, of of the same substance means one with and unity. Um, one thought, thought, thing that is very helpful to understanding this is um, sort of like the sun and the light. Um, so just as there isn't really a time where the sun is, but the light is not. Right? I, I don't know. I'm not a physicist, but uh, you know, just for it's a it's a base analogy, right? So let's not um, get too technical about it. But you know, the the, when we think of the sun, right, it's hard to imagine, or like light, or you know, a light bulb, right? When you turn it on, there isn't really a time when there isn't light, right? It's just it's one and the same, right? So it can be helpful to think of consubstantial meaning that same thing, right? That he is of the same substance, that you know, the that God is a sun, or that God is the sun and the sun is the light, right? Um, um, that there wasn't a time when the two were separate, right? They were of the same substance, of the same kind, co-eternal, co-existing, consubstantial, right? Um, and that was a really damning refutation to a lot of the things Arius believed and Arius taught. Um, and I think really focusing on that word, what it means, can reap you know intense benefits for our own spiritual life. Meditating on the same substance, right? That sort of unity that it brings, right? The unity between God the Father and God the Son is closer than the unity between any man and any other man. Okay, good stuff there. A uh, good reminder that. Though we could talk about the Latin inconsubstantial, really the creed was originally in Greek, <laughs> Greek yeah. and uh, which is why you study the classics, both of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the other thing that you said, I mean, with your sun and light analogy, the father being like the sun, S-U-N, and the sun, S-O-N, being like the light. I, I don't think that's too far off the mark, given that the creed itself uses the language of light from light. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. Let's do some close reading here. So everyone listening at your critical reading at <laughs> um, Son. It's really important sometimes to talk not only about what is said, but why it is said and in the way it's said. And this is something we've mentioned before, but there's a lot of emphasis here, even to the point of seeming redundancy. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. What's going on with the God from God and true God from true God part? Any thoughts on that? Why is that repeated? What does the true do? Well, I think one thing that's really important to understanding why that's repeated is the stress of, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the historical significance of what was going on, right? 
this was the fundamental problem affecting the church at the time, right? This idea that, uh, you know, it was, they were different, right? Two different things. One was God, but not God. One was, you know, light, but not really light. Like one was, you know, one was the true God and one was like, you know, some sort of weird image reflection type thing. Um, and so the emphasis, I think, really helps to counteract the, uh, the underemphasis of, of Christ's divinity. And that, I think, was the main purpose that it served. Um, just to over, just to emphasize again and again of same substance of the same God, you know, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial, right? It's just over and over. It's like a wave, you know, hitting the beach over and over again, just to make sure that we get that because it is so important, um, as we said, to understanding Christ as our Savior, understanding as uh, understanding Christ as God as one. Uh, and this was the point that the church fathers wanted to make sure that we understood from the Council of Nicaea. This was the most important part um, to uh, to destroying, you know, the heresy and and to ultimately like uh, uh, enlightening our souls to to the beauty of God, right? You know, enlightening, right? I'm picturing Saint Nicholas kind of insisting on one more clause. <laughs> I think, and oh, I should have done slightly more research, but I think he was the one who wrote this phrase. Um, Light from light, true God. That might not be true. I will do research and I will come to the next episode and and confirm whether or not that's true. But I think that's true. With more stories about the adventures of Saint Nicholas. Oh, yes, truly. Okay, so okay, that that makes sense about what's going on with the God from God, light from light, true God from true God, right? That the real emphasis is on Christ existing co-eternally. With the Father, He's of the same substance as the Father. As we talked about last time, He's begotten, not made. He's, in some sense, subordinated in role, but not in chronology, not in essence to mm. the Father. Right. Uh, but it relates to Him as the best terms we have are Father and Son. Mm -hmm. And okay, so trying to wrap our heads a little bit around that. Now, to take it back to the concrete here. So if Christ. We think of him as both God and man. That's kind of how we started. Who is Jesus Christ as a historical and literary figure? He's both God and man. Was he always human? Was there a time before the incarnation, as we'll get to next time? What was he doing for all the ages? <laughs> uh, well, what's going on there? Um, yeah. Um, so this is also a very um, interesting idea that's that pops up. That's popped up a little recently in. Uh, some more liberal theologians, um, the idea that there is somehow this Christ spirit that is without form, that has existed eternally, and then when Christ became incarnate, this um, spirit, you know, descended upon him, right? Some people say it descended upon him at his conception. Other people would say at baptism, right, it descended upon him. But before that, he, you know, he, it wasn't. Uh, but that's not what the Nicene Creed or, 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 what the, or what scripture seems to suggest, right? Um, you would have to say that the, that as, as, you know, Christ himself says, right, before Abraham was, I am, right, I, and, uh, it would be, it'd be really remiss to think that you could, like, divide these things that are supposed to be an eternal unity, right, as we, as we'll, we'll probably delve a little bit more in, in, and touch on Christology, right, the importance of the human, you know, united to the divine, but to start, like, dividing that and to saying, oh, there was a time when, uh, human nature was not, you know, in, in unity with the divine nature and the person of Christ. And there was a time when that logos or, or spirit of God existed eternally, but wasn't, didn't have a body, didn't have a form. You start drawing these divisions instead of unifying Christ um, 
and um, yeah, so 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 um, this can be really it can be really hard to understand, right? The um, eternal nature of even the body of Christ, right? The, and and even then, we have these sort of scriptural allegories, right? That aren't really allegories, but are like true, right? When we talk about ourselves as the body of Christ, right? The church as the body of Christ, partaking in that. Um, so that existing eternally is of utmost importance, right? You know, the glorification of the body, right? And the resurrection. Um, and it can be tough to sort of place God in time um, because he's not in time, right? This is one thing that really, I think, um, when I learned how to think about it a little bit better, helped me think a little bit more clearly about God, right? Um, God is not inside time, right? He's sort of the author of the book that he writes, you know, uh, Polly, you know, went to grab crackers and then he can leave, come back. And then he writes, you know, Polly went and then drink and then she drank water. Right. And for Polly, those two things happen like back to back. Right. But for God, you know, the author, right. Um, not that he leaves us, but you know, um, for the sake of the allegory, um, the analogy, um, those things he could have spent an eternity beyond those days and you know somehow separate and distinct right you'd have to say the same thing for christ right Mm -hmm. christ as separate from or or as outside of time right and to say that christ can christ exists without his body um can it doesn't quite square with this timeless nature nature of god great some really interesting things there eternity our default way of thinking about eternity is just really long time but the <laughs> but, but, but the point is that it's outside time in a sense i think augustine's uh, thought about it was like an eternal present like it, it is in a sense like a present it's outside the flow of time so the present is the closest thing we have to eternity because past and future are respectively past and future but again another conversation and a complicated one at that to the question of what was Christ doing uh, if he was consubstantial with the Father? Was he, what was he doing for all that time? We, we've had some sense of what the Father's activity was, you know, creating everything. And what was Christ doing? Rory's not on the podcast today, but when he, we'll, 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 we'll pit him down and we'll grill him on this in some other episode because he's, uh, he's mentioned, I think, a little bit about mentions of Christ in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. This figure of that exists alongside God. Uh, there's, uh, theologians will talk about cr- uh, the pre-incarnate Christ appearing at times, this idea of a theophany, an appearance of God to people in, in some kind of bodily form. Mm-hmm. But more than that, there's, this, there's references sometimes in the Old Testament to this figure who kind of exists alongside God. And this is interesting because it's what we're going to get to next, this next clause of the creed is particularly closely associated with creation, sustaining creation, and particularly with relating to human beings. So uh, one passage that comes to mind is Proverbs 8, where it's talking about divine wisdom, which is very heavily personified to an extent that gets Christians nodding their heads and saying, well, something's going on here that's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty obvious. But wisdom here says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, ages ago I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth. So before all creation, I was present. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. And then it concludes, so when he did all these things, when God created everything, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then, says wisdom, I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, 
rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Okay, so there's this figure who interacts very closely with creation. You used a word earlier, logos, that we might that would do well to dig into a little bit. But what do we mean when we say that there's this principle who, yes, let's be upfront, we, we, we would say is Christ, who's so intimately linked with creation, the created order, human beings, that the creed here will say, through him all things were made. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit earlier about what you said about, you know, some of the Old Testament references. And um, this actually links almost directly to what we're saying in a really weird way. Um, Athanasius held, uh, you know, or or believed that the angel of the Lord was, um, uh, I don't want to get him wrong. He he believed that the angel of the Lord was was sort of a pre-incarnate Christ. And and briefly, who's Athanasius? yes. So um, Athanasius was one of the church fathers who was present at the Council of Nicaea and post the Council of Nicaea was one of the most ardent defenders against Arianism uh, of this idea of the eternal Christ. Um, he was, you know, he had some real spiritual metal. He was exiled over and over again for, for proclaiming this, right? Because Constantine and, and some of his later uh, uh, subsequent emperors were not the most, uh, were, were pretty big fans of Arianism, but uh, they were, ex- he was exiled for a time, you know, abandoned, you know, ridiculed, mocked, but he, you know, in depth wrote and wrote and wrote about how Arianism could not be, could not be, could not uh, hold, right? His uh, masterpiece was uh, Four Discourses Against the Arians, um, and he tried to distinguish begetting and making. Um, He thought that that was, you know, nailing down that could could clearly show that Arianism would not hold, right? Um, But so Athanasius, really, 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 um, really staunch defender, against Arianism. And one of the things that he held was that the angel of the Lord could be the pre-incarnate, you know, Christ. And that was, a, was another blow against the Arians, right? That, that you could have a, you could have a Christ who was, uh, who, 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 uh, interacted before perhaps he, you know, fully incarnated. Um, it's that theology can be really hard though. I'm very, very bad at it. I'm, I wish Rory was here to, mm-hmm. to nail it down. Cause you gotta, you gotta be really careful with your pre-incarnate Christ theories. Um, but yes, um, and then as to your second point, right, through him all things were made. Um, so when we talk about God, right, um, we have, when we read the Nicene Creed, even just a few sentences earlier, right, it proclaims that, um, that God is, is maker of all things, visible and invisible, right? That's one of the important things, that, the, that the, all those things are produced by the divine essence or substance and are, you know, therefore attributed equally to the three persons. But um, when we look, I think, at the prologue of John's gospel, that can probably be really, really helpful in narrowing down what, what, would be, uh, what, what might be meant. Um, so, right, when we look at uh, the first chapter, right, very obviously we have um, in the first couple of verses, right, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
right? And then, you know, a few verses later you get, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John identifies this word as being, you know, consubstantial with God, right? The word was with the God, word was with God, and the word was God, mm-hmm. right? But he also identifies him directly as the son of God, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And also says, you know, um, through him, all things were made through him, right? Similar as we find in the creed, right? So the creed was a big source of inspiration for for this particular section of the creed. Um, and this leads us to four characteristics about, about uh, Christ that we learned from that. So, you know, one, he's eternal. Two, he's personal. He's divine. And he's creative, right? Through him, all things were made. Um, and, you know, the key word here, obviously, is the preposition through. What does that mean? What do we mean when something is created through something? Right. Um, and so it's, I think the one thing that I found helpful to think about it is like a plan, mm-hmm. right? A, a, a form, you know, for us, for the more classically minded, uh, a, right. a, you know, the carpenter has to have a plan, a form of the table before he crafts it, right? Um, and the word of God is that, you know, idea god's idea of himself right because god's knowledge of himself contains within it all things right so it's sort of the plan of god you know that is the the idea of himself that in interacting with that all things were made because god doesn't need to know anything outside of himself in order to create anything because all things are created within it okay for some little classics interjections i don't know what the preposition here would be could be dia or para i don't like greek prepositions because <laughs> they change meaning based on whatever case they do but anyway that's uh, i have a greek midterm coming up so i just have this on my mind uh, another thing all, all right so, so we have this idea of forms christ almost as sort of the perfect idea of how things are going to be that god according to which god creates sort of the blueprint you could say that's one way to think about it. It still seems kind of very in, yeah. in, in the, up in the air, kind of abstract. When we say word, and I mean, logos, the word John uses, is a very rich thing that you'll find in Greek and Roman philosophical traditions as meaning kind of the principle, yes, by which everything in the universe is ordered. Mm-hmm. There's very interesting parallels with the concept in Chinese philosophy of the Tao, the way according to which all things are ordered, which is conceived of as uh, timeless in a sense. But putting that aside, word itself, I mean, we translate it as word, which is one way to translate logos. Um, to me, the Genesis story just comes to mind, right? Mm. How God creates. How does he create, right? With, with the word, let there be light. He speaks. And, and so this idea of the speaking God, I think, is very interesting, very relevant to why Christ might be called the word and might be, and the word itself might be the medium by which things are created. Mm. Um, a passage that also came to mind is Colossians. Colossians 1, chapter uh, 15 uh, 15 and uh, on th- okay this is interesting and we'll let's talk about this because verse 15 says christ he christ is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation so let's hold on to that firstborn of all creation part because on the surface if you took it out of context that might sound like christ was created mm-hmm. which is what this creed is explicitly denying mm-hmm. for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things are created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's going on here? What's the relation of Christ to creation, and what's going on with this firstborn of all creation? Yeah, when we see those verses, right, for him, for in, for by him all things were created, you know, um, all things were created through him, right? And we also see the firstborn of all crea- creation, creation, right? These reflections um, kind of lead us to the conclusion that both the Father and the Son, right, the Word of God, you know, the Son, are involved in creation, right? They're co-eternal. They're both involved in the action of creation, right? And if the Son is involved in the action of creation, he can't be created, right? So that these all these passages about through him, you know, creation happens, right? If, you know, all if creation happens through him, right, he himself can't be an element of creation, right? It, it would be a... It sort of fail um, um, by definition, right? And so, in that regard, right, there can't be a time uh, when 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 Christ was not right. There can't be a time um, when uh, the thing before creation, you know, wasn't right. That wouldn't make any sense. Um, okay, that, that that makes sense. I guess, yeah, that that was was kind of what I was trying to get at. I think the language of the firstborn, and this is kind of me speculating here, might be better taken even as a question of precedence. Elsewhere in scripture, we will mm. get this language yeah. of Christ makes us also sons of God, children of God, mm. but he is the firstborn. He is the begotten son mm. of God who is firstborn of all the rest of us. So there's that. And I guess the reason I brought up this passage as well was to talk about what was Christ doing this whole time? What is he doing in a sense now? And it sounds like he's very actively involved in sustaining creation, mm-hmm. ruling over it. He says in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm-hmm. So this active rule of sustaining, of governing things, really relates to some of what we said about the logo style, kind of the sustaining order of things. But What's different then about the Christian conception to bring it to a personal, practical level? If other people have thought about some kind of sustaining, ordering thing, what's special about Christ being that? The most, the most special and unique thing is that he's a person, right? The Tao, you know, the way, all these like first principles, right? They're all true, but they're not personable, right? The first principle, the thing that sustains the universe, right? That ontological you know, perpetual sustaining is constantly at work, you know, holding together everything was a real person who we touch, feel, see, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, who was, who was crucified for our sake, right? Very tangible, real person, right? And understanding, right, the weight of the grandeur of the glory, right? That this person who was eternal, who was of the same substance as God, the father, who was light from light, who was God from God, true God from true God, this mighty, you know, all beauty, all goodness, all truth contained within himself, right, became, you know, an infant, right, Mm -hmm. Um, worked as a carpenter for 30 years, and then preached to us, and then died a humiliating death, right? He was was beaten, whipped, and scourged, you know, Um, and understanding just how much you know how much his uh his his glory is adds to the glory of that of that process right how much would we like to become a sea slug right it's the same thing for god to become for christ you know the the eternal um 
the eternal uh, one with God, right, to become one of us. And right. then, you know, not only does he become a sea slug, but, you know, then, like, he's brutally tortured and whipped and crucified. But from our perspective, maybe sea slugs don't have too much of a bad existence. <laughs> I mean, maybe for a day or so <laughs> during midterms, you know, because... <laughs> but, yeah, to compare God to a human being, I suppose, is mm. the gap is infinitely greater. So, mm. Okay, and as you were saying that, I started to get a little bit of a sense of why these doctrines are so mm -hmm. crucial because, yeah, to say that they can be tackled on so many different levels, but on the philosophical level, even to say that there is some kind of whatever you want to call it, the logos, the Tao, the uh, divine wisdom, whatever it is, to, to say that that is... In, in a sense, to call it impersonal, you end up having these very fatalistic approaches to life, but it also kind of means we don't have to deal with it mm -hmm. so much. And then to say that that became, becomes, becomes a man, that becomes this, that, that that is the same as the Jewish carpenter we were talking mm -hmm. about a few episodes mm -hmm. ago, that really is mind-blowing. And to say, moreover, that we continue to interact with this person today. Mm -hmm. That's really incredible. It stretches the mind. And perhaps understanding that or getting at least a glimpse of what is being said here helps us understand what, why there was so much emphasis on this, why St. Nicholas got so riled up about it, <laughs> why, why people were exiled for this. And yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that, just a side note, one, one uh, book that I found very helpful is uh, Bishop Barron's Light from Light, you know, fitting name, uh, A Theological Reflection on the Nicene Creed. And you think he, he came up with that title? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think he might have gotten it from somewhere. Um, but yeah, his closing statement reflection on this um, is along these lines. He says, um, it is most important never to forget that even as we climb the heights of metaphysical speculation in regard to the Trinity, the roots of this doctrine are in the very particular Jew, Jesus of Nazareth. Prophets and patriarchs spoke to God and even, in some sense, heard the voice of God. But when Jesus speaks to his Father, or when the Holy Spirit intervenes in the life of Jesus, we are not witnessing just one more human being in dialogue with his Creator. Rather, we are overhearing, as it were, a conversation taking place within the inner life of God. We know that God is love, not through abstract musing on the nature of ultimate reality, but from the awful dialogue between Jesus and his father on the cross. That's, that's very rich, uh, that last point especially. And to understand the, the weight of Calvary, I think, and of Gethsemane for that matter, mm -hmm. is to hear the persons of the Godhead and their interaction with each other um, on in such terms, not my will, but yours be done. Mm. And why have you forsaken me? There's a real weight there. Okay. Wow. Um, so there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot going on in this creed. Um, there's a lot being said here. I think what was valuable about pulling up some of the scriptural passages is that though Arius might've, you know, been able to pick a few passages that seem to support his position. I, I do think there's a lot in the scripture that supports this position, right? Mm -hmm. Even more so. And so to get into some kind of practical or uh, denominational even differences, for me as, as a Protestant, that's partly the value of this creed in that mm -hmm. to me, my, in my head, the authority of this creed comes from how it enshrines things that are mm -hmm. found in scripture. 
What's the value of this creed from uh, where you're coming from as a Catholic? How do you see it standing? How do you see the authority of these doctrines? Yeah. So I view the creed as this beautiful harmony between what I believe to be like the two distinctive, um, and distinctive is probably the wrong word, but but two elements of, of the Catholic faith, right? Sacred tradition and sacred scripture, right? The Nicene Creed is an element of sacred tradition, but sacred tradition is not as I said earlier, distinctive from sacred scripture. It's the harmony between the two, right? And Arius, you know, uh, seems to me like someone who, you know, in contradictor in contradiction to to tradition, right? He um, reads scripture and gets, you know, uh, he wants he's you know wants a good thing, right? He wants to understand right Christ more to be able to love him better. But because he forsakes tradition, because he forsakes authority and tries to take scripture um, into his own hands to a certain sense, he gets misled um, and, and ends up, you know, diminishing the glory that he wanted to to preserve. And, you know, and the beauty I find is that from, you know, for, for all generations now, right, even though Arius made a grave heresy, we now have this beautiful creed that we remind ourselves that, you know, we can spend like 20, you know, podcast episodes on uh, musing on the beauty because of the way in which tradition interplays with scripture and to create this beautiful cohesive whole. I see. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And to some of these questions about what is tradition, what is scripture, I think we'll get into that definitely more as this, as this series goes on, as we talk more about the role of the creeds. I guess my, I guess a question here, I mean, we've covered a lot. We've covered, uh, <laughs> the, the, the the theological issues going on here, Christ as Logos, St. Nicholas's adventures. But uh, <laughs> I, th I think my question is, how do you see these, the, the, these Christological doctrines in particular? What is the value of them for you, perhaps personally in devotional life, or more so how do you see them being enshrined in the worship of the church and liturgy and anything mm -hmm. like that. How, how are these relevant? Mm -hmm. um, Practically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. After, after this podcast recording, I always get to go over and, and uh, go to mass and we recite the Nicene creed. Um, and so I think practically, um, and this is something I, I really want to do an even better job as is, is in the liturgy of the church, right? We have all these fantastic prayers that, because, you know, we may have grown up with them, we tend to forget the beauty. And we don't really, we just sort of like take for granted. The priest always says, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, so, you know, just, just just how it goes. But taking some time to reflect on what we say, what we do, even our routine, the things that have been, you know, the tradition that's been handed down to us and, and why it's so beautiful and important, it can allow us to better experience, you know, the sacred liturgy. Um, and so every time now after this, I, I've experienced, I think, so much great spiritual fruit in, in having these conversations and uh, understanding more and then going and with this understanding, you know, professing that God is God, light from light, true God from true God, proclaiming the, the great glory of God. And then, you know, minutes, minutes later, um, as a Catholic, I get to receive him, you know, himself, right, uh, as, as a lowly, you know. Under, under the lowly form of bread and wine. I see. Yeah, so, okay, that's, that, that's good. Uh, and to kind of tackle that question myself in terms of what's the value of this 
these doctrines as sort of a uh, on the level of the Christian walk. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that really comes to mind about God, uh, Christ as God, is is how it applies as far as prayer mm-hmm. goes. Yeah. To let's put it this way. If a sea slug rolled up and started chatting to me about its daily life, I'm not sure why I would listen. (laughs) (laughs) More than a few minutes, maybe. It might be interesting. But (laughs) to think that I can show up and start talking to God about Mm -hmm. things that are on my mind, about right? And Mm -hmm. to realize that he is not far from us, that Mm -hmm. he will listen. He he listens and he listens to the point where he identifies with us so mm-hmm. fully to the point where he became, yeah. where he became a man. That, and we will talk so much more about this when we get to the incarnation and mm-hmm. the richness of that. But to think that Christ knows what we experience, to think that he went through human life, there's so much value in that. I kind of wish Nate were here because he could talk a little bit. The Orthodox <laughs> are really big on union with God, God becoming man yep. so that man could become God is the right. phrase they use. And this idea of identification, of unity, of being, C.S. Lewis's image is drawn up into the dance of mm-hmm. the Trinity, essentially, mm-hmm. is so so beautiful and rich. It drives me to want to worship more. It drives me to want to praise this God who, who listens to us, who hears us in prayer, and who identifies with us, who mm-hmm. is not far from us. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, intimate, personal connection. And uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just very lucky I get to do this and then go to Mass. Cause, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. Do you have any more thoughts on this section? One last note is this section is very hard, and the theology is very rich. And I probably said something that <laughs> might, you know, be borderline heresy. I don't know. You might be an Aryan. Uh, I have I'm, to come I'm, over I'm, there and suck. I might have, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Careful. If artist is shocked, I'd probably die. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... While this podcast is super useful and the conversations are really important and develop our own understandings, you know, our word is not gospel, right? Uh, um, please, um, I can't stress this enough. If you find some sort of intrigue or you find a real desire to investigate this more, go ahead and, and, and do it, right? Um, there's so much written about this. And, and, you know, I myself know that I probably didn't present it in the most straightforward, clear way. Um, so I would highly, highly encourage you to do some some research. Uh, you know, come up and tell me if something I said was wrong. Uh, <laughs> that'd be uh, very edifying for my own, you know, fraternally correction ways. Um, from the Catholic perspective, I can recommend just a couple of resources really quickly. Um, so I mentioned earlier Bishop Barron's uh, book, Light from Light, a theological reflection on the Nicene Creed. It's really, really good. Um, I have the book. Uh, I live in Carlton, 7A. So if you want the book, feel free to knock on my door um, and I will more than happily give it to you. Um, you know, the catechism is structured after the Nicene Creed. So it's got, you know, a similar pattern. And for a more practical, personal level, uh, Father Landry, the chaplain for the Catholic ministry, has office hours every day from two to four on a Monday through Friday. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to knock on his door and uh, ask him anything. Um, I don't know how, how good of an answer he'll be able to give you just with no prep, but he can definitely point you the right ways and, and probably you know give you much more wisdom than I could ever hope to. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that reminder, Joel, that these conversations, we're not 
people spend years studying these oh, doctrines yeah. and nobody comes to the end of them. Isn't that the, the, the story of Aquinas at the end of his life saying that everything he'd written was yeah. like straw, right? He had a vision of the crucifixion is what happened. And so he saw the, the beauty of the cross and then he tried to burn all of his suba. Yeah. So there's just so much going on here. And these conversations don't even pretend to plumb <laughs> the depths of that. Instead, these should be a springboard for you listening, whether you're a Christian or not, to if something's interested you here go learn more, ask more questions because there's so much depth here and you're not going to come to the end of it. In terms of resources, as a Protestant, I also feel obligated to say, read your Bibles. It's, yeah. <laughs> if, as you read the Gospels, it is where you will see this Christ at work. Sure. As you read Colossians, as we did, or Proverbs, you will, see, you will see him. You will see him as he interacts with the Father and as he interacts with the rest of creation. You can join with him in prayer to the Father on our mm-hmm. behalf and in John and in the other Gospels. And so mm-hmm. there's so much if you just, uh, at your fingertips, if you read the Bible too, where this Christ whom we've been talking about, um, you, 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 you draw closer to him and you see him actively at work. Mm-hmm. Great. If someone else is hosting this podcast next week, assume that I've attacked Joel for heresy and I've gone <laughs> out to the North Pole. But other than that, uh, thanks for being on the podcast today, Joel. <laughs> thanks for having me, Artie. Thank Great. you guys for listening. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Maybe. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at at thegoodfightpod, and reach us with any questions or comments at witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Good Fight.